The His Girl Friday podcast is brought to you in part by Messenger Fellowship, living the kingdom, fulfilling the call, proclaiming the truth. How's it going, everyone? This is yours truly, Cameron Fry with His Girl Friday, coming at you on a Saturday night. It felt like Sunday all day. Had a church event this morning, celebrated Mother's Day with my side of the fam. You get why I feel that way. It's 8.30, it's Saturday. I'm recording this in the dark, not because the power's out, but because UPS is running slow and I have some very specific light bulbs I have to order uh, from a special store that's not local and it's just taking a long time and Caden's spending the night with the with my parents and so his room is unoccupied. I got a good spot. Um, my office and his room kind of coincide in the season but enough about that. Hope you guys are doing well, that you're staying healthy, that you're staying fresh, you're staying alive uh, in more ways than one. And for today I'll just kind of dive in. I won't worry about a, a life update this go around. I want to go back in time. I know Easter has passed, and I know we're in May, and the, this content is typically something you hear in March or April. But I want to go back and kind of double down, do a dual Easter post. Uh, one piece I wrote last April on the 11th, and then I also want to go back and talk about something I wrote three years ago on April 16, 2017, that I repolished uh, a few weeks ago about Pilate and why he washed his hands uh, in Matthew 27. Uh, so that's going to be our approach tonight. Uh, but b- before I go there, I want to share just four new insights concerning the Easter story, the death and resurrection of Jesus. Uh, things that I have read before but never really stood out until I reread the Gospels. And I told a friend uh, before Easter, before the whole quarantine thing, kind of full swing, I said, you know, I think this year I'm going to read the gospel in the message version. I don't think I've ever done that. I always want to try and find a new approach, a new angle, a new take when approaching the Easter chapters. And I try to expose myself to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, anywhere where, um, you know, the death, the crucifixion, the burial, the resurrection, uh, the pre-acts set up. I try to immerse myself, and message was the way to go though I did bounce around a lot of translations. So uh, the first revelation comes from Luke 22, 14 through 16. When it was time, he sat down, all the apostles with him, and said, you have, you have no idea how much I've looked forward to eating this Passover meal with you before I enter my time of suffering. It's the last one I'll eat until we all eat it together in the kingdom of God. We look at this and it's like, oh, that's a cute anecdotal side note. Jesus was looking forward to this Passover meal. Whoop-de-doo. Well, not so fast. Because, you know, I I read this and I'm like thinking, Jesus must be stressing out at this point. He must be anxious. How he felt in the Garden of Gethsemane. I just kind of projected it into the the Last Supper room, if you will. Figured Jesus was trying to ease the tension a little bit. Well, I think... What was overflowing the most at this point was enthusiasm. Finally, he could have this, the most important meal of his life. He could share it in communion and community. 
with his disciples. I think it says something about Jesus that that's the lead emotion here. I'm not saying he wasn't scots-free of any concern or, again, anxiety. I don't believe he was afraid or fearful. I believe the cross was set before him constantly and, you know, that there wasn't any fear of man in play. If there was fear, it was of his father. In a way, Jesus was like, you know, just the magnitude of the moment was before him. And so that's, you know, to say Jesus wasn't overwhelmed, I think we can't deny his humanity there. He was full humanity and full divinity. I firmly believe that. But in this passage, we see a very vulnerable Jesus taking time to openly admit to his disciples, I've looked forward to eating this with you. It adds a whole different dimension to the Passover passage for me. From the beginning, Christ never lost sight of this moment. Not just dying on the cross and being raised again and ascending to the Father, but this specific Last Supper moment. He never lost a desire to be in community. And now here he was, the Son of Man, pouring into man in the most literal way possible. The cross, the climax of his mission in clear view. I don't know about you, but to know the joy, the gladness of Jesus, never detached from the glory of his fathers, it's nothing short of inspiring. Not to mention one of the more underrated parts of the Easter story. Despite the pain and betrayal before him, the cross was all the more. And even in this pre-Passover hour, the tone of Jesus' final breath was being set. As it pertains to us, a body of leaders, vocationals, bivocationals, entrepreneurs, etc. Let's remember the model behind this historic screenshot. If Jesus can joyfully partake in a preview of his own death, then we with Christ in us can do the same, regardless of cost and circumstance. However, in the crossing of troubled waters, remember the bridges involved are not only paved in delight, but with people in proximity. So let's not forget and neglect community in our communion with God. Jesus pursued both in the same spheres. It wasn't decompartmentalized. Instead, let's just trust God to anchor our relational intentionality, especially when this quarantine is over and we go back to our regular rhythms. Let's anchor that intentionality within the context of sharing goodness and good news together. All right, so the second revelation comes from Mark 14, 27 through 28. Jesus told them, you're all going to feel that your world is falling apart and that it's my fault. There's a scripture that says, I will strike the shepherd, the sheep will go helter-skelter, but after I am raised up, I will go ahead of you. That's from the message version, if you couldn't tell. Anytime you see helter-skelter, probably not ESV or NIV. Very amplified. So here's a reason why reading the Minor Prophets can prove beneficial during Easter. Remember in Zechariah 13 when Zechariah prophesies about a fountain opening for the house of David to cleanse them from sin and uncleanliness? And in verse 7 he mentions, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. I will turn my hand against the little ones. Okay. No worries if you <laughs> forgot about that. It wasn't on your radar uh, this past Easter. 
It wasn't on mine. I had to look it up, had to study, had to research, had to drill down, and that's okay. Sometimes that's our exposure to the minor prophets. We want to connect dots that we read in the Gospels and the Book of Acts and the and Paul's letters. We want to trace concepts and truths back to their origins when they're mentioned for the first time. And in some cases, you know, there's a lot of prophecies in the minor testament. Let's not kid ourselves. But to keep track of them could be tough, you know. I'm not thinking the sheep will scatter when I'm thinking death, resurrection of Jesus. The key takeaway here is the Alpha and Omega of the passage itself. Jesus. Having been buried and resurrected with Christ, Colossians 2.12, Romans 6.4 as references, we can know full well any time our world seems to crumble and crack, Jesus is there because he has gone before us. How many times have we gotten that message, that theme in the Psalms? Even when we feel like the one sheep going helter-skelter, astray within our own vanity, we can know Christ will go after us. He took the nails to set us free, but also to pursue us by his Spirit and assure us of his continual Emmanuel presence. I really love this. I mean, yes, even in the chaos that we've been sensing and encountering this year, God has gone ahead of us, and he will go ahead of us. He's also our rear guard, but he's also that front flank. He's that constant shield, that covering, that source of refuge at all times. And Jesus expects there'll be moments when we do, we do that today. You know, we have an opportunity to run to him, and we turn to other means. We are not putting him at the forefront He's not the center of what we're saying or doing. Um, he's not the source we're relying on, I should say. But, he, but just like Peter, I mean, we have Peter moments every day where it's, we maybe not verbally deny him. We may not speak against him. But we behave as if he's not a part of the equation, that he's not in the picture when he is. And I think if we're honest with ourselves, we have Peter moments almost every day the question is, are we calibrating back to Jesus? Are we living a lifestyle of repentance? Is one of the things that really grips me is, uh, you know, Jesus, in that Last Supper scene, he's telling Peter, you're going to die me three times before the rooster crows, before the cock crows, whatever. And he's like, surely not, Lord. And Jesus is like, no, you're going to do it, just to paraphrase. And he even prophesies and hints that he is going to be mortified. He's going to be gripped with guilt and sadness afterwards, but after he gets better, dot, dot, dot. Jesus knows he's going to rebound. He not only you know, prophesies the sin and the, the lamentation, the remorse, but he prophesies into, you're going to recover from this, and then you're going to do this. You're still my rock, Peter. You're still, or you're going to be, <laughs> you're going to build the rock upon the foundation I've laid here. And so I, I, that, I didn't really write about that. I might write about that more next year, but that's just one of the other things, that, you know, visuals that really stuck with me. Um, Easter 2020 will be in large part remembered for that scene. All right, number three. If people do these things to a live green tree, can you imagine what they'll do with dead wood? That's from Luke 23:31. All right, here's another weird, bizarre phrase that out of context, you're like, is this even scripture? If you ever had to recite the Easter story, you're probably not quoting this line. After all, it's a tough verse to understand without aforementioned context. 
Yes, we can deduce Jesus is the green tree and the dead wood at probably people who don't like him, who've rejected him, Pharisees, Sadducees. The builders rejected Psalms 118.22 prophesies into. But why would he bring this up in the midst of a death march? The cross is not only set before him, it's on him at this point. As research has shown, there's plenty of room for debate. However, some suggest Jesus was hinting at a specific eschatological event, i.e. destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. Others like me are just impressed he was prophesying at all at this point. Even in his final moments, he was making things new. He was finding new ways to phrase things, new word pictures, new illustrations. God, God, his love through Jesus, Jesus' love for man, wasn't didn't cease when he got condemned, didn't cease when he was sentenced. He was loving even as he was walking to the cross. And we, we look at some of these quotes and it's like, well, where's the love in it? And, and I think we have to take a fine-tooth comb and filter into understanding what Jesus is implying here. Sometimes it comes across as cryptic, but there are certain quotes that we just have to drill down on to really fully understand, especially when we talk about modern-day application. Even with Simon of Cyrene carrying the cross, correction, I mentioned he was carrying the cross. I think at this point in Luke 23, Simon's carrying the cross. So uh, Jesus still had enough selfless awareness to redirect sorrow to its proper source and purify emotions in the light of his suffering. There are a lot of people wondering what's going on. I'm so gripped with grief with what I'm seeing. There was plenty of Jesus proponents and advocates in the crowd there watching what was going on. It's not like everyone was against Jesus. There were some people who were mortified and Jesus cared about their emotions to tell them like, no, 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 this was, don't be surprised. This was going to happen all along. And we're going to see that more and more as the dark gets darker and the light gets lighter in the years and centuries and millenniums ahead. But going back to this moment in the Easter story, in a sense, not only was Jesus foreshadowing his request for God to forgive the dead wood, but also sowing truth in his final moments with people, the community, the communal aspect was still intact. Even as he was passing up the cross to Simon, and, you know, again, he only has a couple hours left in his life. That's, uh, you know, the sowing truth reference, John fourteen six. He was still the way, the truth, and the life in his final moments. I love it. Last takeaway, Easter 2020, Revelations. Luke twenty four forty five. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Simple quote. Not like the last one. So after Jesus' resurrection, we tend to paraphrase the, the pre-ascension as Christ making himself known. And by all accounts, this is true. Before Jesus could ascend, he first needed to show and tell before Operation Great Commission could begin. However, to stop here would be to stop short of really capturing that the uniqueness of that time between being raised and ascending. There's some beautiful testimony and there's some powerful stories in this last chapter of Luke. You have Mary Magdalene, you have Johanna and Mary, verse 10, going to the tomb, expecting to see a dead body there. You have, um, I think it's Cleopas and his wife, verse 31, the 11, 
Jesus was making multiple appearances here. You know, clearly Jesus, he had more instruction and blessing to impart. It wasn't just like, hey, I'm back. Peace be unto you. Yes, peace. You know, but there were some directives. There were some initiatives left to share. And, you know, from what ultimately makes these nine words stand out, in verse 45, Jesus was tying a bow on what he started and cutting a ribbon on what he was about to start. At last, the era of the synagogue was transitioning into the dawn of his bride, the church. And who would be in the middle of it? But Jesus, the peacemaking bridge building or bridge builder himself. I know when we think Jesus is savior, we think pre-cross, but the post-cross sequence to me is just as significant as affirming the nature of his love. And that's kind of the thing. I mean, the love is everywhere, even in the most out-of-the-box, out-of-left-field phrases and quotes and scriptures. I wasn't trying to go for the most, you know, I, I wasn't looking at these revelations as, let me find the most bizarre stuff for content purposes. I was looking at things that either hadn't caught my eye or I didn't understand. And sometimes I go with the latter. What doesn't make sense to me right away? And kind of make a list. And I drill down and in this case, you know, half the points were, huh, I never really thought of it that way before. And some of it was like, I don't even remember this. <laughs> so, all right. So I want to jump back further in time to when I wrote about the water bowl, why Jesus washed his hands. This uh, The passage we're going to talk about, Matthew 27, 11 through 26. I wasn't podcasting in 2017. I started in 2018, so I wouldn't have uh, included this or thought to include this with the post. Real quick, just kind of side note, footnote. It's crazy how much, when, when you write regularly, it's crazy how much it evolves over time. You just take a two, three year period and I'm like, man, the writing has improved since then. Can't help but try and fix and edit and modify you know, the, the posts that, it's not about traffic per se, but have the potential for future hits. And so I'm like going back through this and I'm like, man, there's some, uh, I could layer this up some. And so that's why I was like, I better pot about it because I didn't do it three years ago for obvious reasons. All right. Imagine being Pontius Pilate, torn between conviction and affliction, the weight of the world and human flesh standing before you. It's a compelling scene. You have this headstrong Roman official in Pontius Pilate, desperate to spare many deemed innocent. You kind of get the impression that, uh, I, I don't want to have to do this. I don't want to have to be out, but this is part of the gig. It's part of my role. Just kind of got to grit and bear it. He probably was tired from pre- previous assignments. You could fill in the gaps. Then you have Barabbas, and clearly he was found guilty to have murdered a, a Roman guard. And to me, it's like, is this really even a question? Is this really a, a decision to be made? But it was. You know, this bloodthirsty mob, ignorant to Jesus' messiahship, super offended by whom they consider more than a lunatic. And so Pilate's like, I'm in the middle of this bizarre situation that just seems so far out of my control, out of my hands. Hence why he watched them. But who knows what he could have been thinking, what convictions were racing through his mind as he procrastinated the inevitable. Granted, I'm giving some, I'm kind of, how do I say, I'm fluffing it out. I'm adding some creative liberty 
some creative license to the scene. I don't know if he was procrastinating at any point, but I get the feeling Pilot was operating in slow motion here. It would be great to jump inside his head, inside the tug of war. Perhaps we could make better sense of such pivotal pressure. It's an iconic scene. I mean, he saw Jesus. You know, his death was going to happen. It was, you know, the, the, the redemption of mankind was performed. And it's like you could see how he didn't want to give him up, but it was almost like he was compelled. You get that sense that God was going to have his way here. And how he uses people who didn't understand. It's like why Jesus on the cross saying, Lord, forgive them. They, for they know not what they do is so powerful and grips me. It's like full, coming full circle here. <laughs> they had to play a part in this for me to be in a situation where I could take the nails and then I could ultimately go to hell and take the keys so that there's a, I could promise the saints an eternal future with me. For now, what we can discern is realizing the mob was threatening a riot. Matthew 27, 24, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd. Now, some scholars say this, you know, he didn't really wash his hands. There was no moment where he cleansed any part of himself. And I'll let scholars debate. You know, for me, I'm like, I don't think it really hurts to believe Matthew here when he says he washed his hands. I don't think it's a metaphor. I don't think he was using poetic license here. I think he was telling the truth. And I think this verse is random. I mean, other verses I've said tonight, I think I'm definitely <laughs> more random if I had to pick one. Still, I get it. If you take this without context, like, well, again, this is just a fun little anecdote. Why does this matter at all? Without context, it is simply that. Just an observation that seems to move the story along just incrementally. But it, again, this moment carries powerful significance. And the washi the washing of Pilate's hands not only symbolized his personal verdict, but embodied what Jesus came to do in the first place. To cleanse us from sin, 1 John 1, 7, and to free mankind from captivity, Luke 4, 18. In addition, it gave future humanity the opportunity to identify with Barabbas, like the notorious prisoner. We who deserve death have been given a second chance at life to know what real death is. Accordingly, the Prisoner exchange, Luke 4, 15-23, can be seen not only as foreshadowing, but also as a microcosm of the cross. Jesus, the Son of God, taking the punishment that Barabbas, the anonymous everyman, rightly deserved. A man guilty of murderous rebellion, offset by one murder for every rebellion. Reading on, the verbal exchange between Pilate and the crowd. we got a couple of verses. I am innocent of this man's blood, see it to yourselves. Says Pilate, his blood be on us and on our children. Okay, this might be one of my favorite top three <laughs> uh, topics to talk about in Easter. You just think about the irony, the instant irony of what is happening here. These people, only a week removed from waving palm branches, declaring, you know, yes, you know, the, the King Jesus has arrived, the Savior, our, at least our perception of Savior, our perception of Messiah, you know, to free us from captivity, from Roman tyranny. Now, you know, a lot of them flipped the script. They changed stances. Now they're declaring judgment on the one who would soon take away their judgment. In a sense, those who knew not what they did were prophesying to those who know not what they do. It's like a past meets present thing. Though the condemners 
didn't understand the power and the blood at the time. They were essentially declaring what we understand today. Now in church, you know, when we worship, we're like, yes, you know, power in the blood. Why not have the blood be honest at our children? We should, we don't want, we should want that. Today, the church's stance is the Christ's blood is sufficient to cover the sins of mankind. So it's funny how they, the condemners in the crowd, I mean, they, they were saying the right thing, just in the wrong spirit. But just, again, God uses everything, turns everything around. He brings things full circle. And I don't know about you, but I can't help but marvel at the, this passage of symmetry. Because truth is, while Pilate would ultimately relent to the unrelenting on the ground, it was God's unrelenting from on high that used all things to fulfill the completion of his word. And it's here I want to zero in on because it's this truth, this past, present, future reality that exemplifies why we celebrate Easter. For God so loved the world, he had the cross in mind before he created it. For God so loved us, he was making a way before we even needed it. How sweet it is to know the same God is still unrelenting and reconciling us to himself. My prayer for you, and bringing all this to the landing, my prayer for you is that you, as you, as you meditate on Christ's death and resurrection, because honestly, we should be doing it every time we have a rede uh, redemption, uh, a repentance moment. We should remember the cross. The cross should be something, you know, a daily reality in our abiding. Not just when Easter comes around in every spring. My prayer for you is you come into a fresh understanding of not only what Christ came to do, but what he wants to do in you. Some scriptures, I'm not going to read them, but just in your spare time, quiet time fodder, 1 Peter 4, 1 through 2, 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18, Micah 6, 8, Philippians 1, 9 through 11. Just some that stand out to me right now. As you seek him this week, this month, whenever, I encourage you to pray the blood over your house and the generations to come, knowing you can now receive it in joy. Unlike those who once pleaded, give us Barabbas, we can now cry, give me Jesus. What a way to live the new life we have. All right, guys. It's been real. It's been awesome. A little over the 25-minute mark, so that's good considering all the content we need to get through tonight. I will try and get a new pod. One more pod at least by the end of the month. Still be socially engaged with one another. Um, happen to the gift of encouragement whether it's your dominant gift or not. Encourage people. Talk to people. Stay, stay plugged into your church. Stay plugged into the people in your business. Don't just work alongside, but uh, capture and seek the Lord as far as how he wants to have you pour into other people using the unique gift and skills that you have. Uh, till then, I'll catch you on the fries. I always say, listen, I root for you. Rooting his highest, his best to be fulfilled and accomplished in your life moving forward this week. You're awesome. Talk to you soon.